Thessalonians chapter 2, and whilst you're turning, uh, I was wanting to show to you a video uh, that uh, for those of you, if you are on uh, Facebook, uh, you would have, and you'll follow us uh, as Calvary Baptist Church on our uh, Facebook page, you would have uh, uh, received our post about brokenness. It's a video uh, about brokenness. It's, uh, it's meant to be an evangelistic video. And uh, we are, um, I'll show this to you next uh, Sunday, if I, uh, Lord willing, of course. Uh, but we are seeking uh, volunteers to translate uh, this v- video, uh, and uh, the plan is that we will put some uh, uh, captions, if we can, uh, for uh, the video, and uh, we would send it out to uh, <clears throat> send it out to uh, different parts of the world. Uh, those of you who um, uh, speak another language. Uh, and you can use this as a tool uh, to evangelize uh, your uh, people, uh, people that you love back home. And so uh, uh, we are, are, are seeking um, if, uh, uh, if you can translate. We have the actual script of the video, uh, and if you can just uh, help us translate it into different languages, and then we can use it uh, as our outreach to the world as such. So I uh, trust that uh, you've uh, turned your Bibles already to 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, <clears throat> Fritz Chrysler, one of the world-famous violinists, earned a fortune with his concerts and compositions, but he generously gave it away during his time. <clears throat> so when he discovered an exquisite violin that he so liked, in, uh, in one of his uh, trips, he didn't have enough money to buy it. Later, having raised enough money to meet the asking price, and quite an expensive uh, price, uh, he returned to the seller, hoping to purchase this beautiful and most exquisite, exquisite of violin. But to his great dismay, It had been sold to a collector. Chrysler made his way to the new owner's home and offered to buy the violin. But the collector said, you know, it had become my prized possession and I don't want to sell it. Disappointed, Chrysler was about to leave when he thought of an idea. And he said, could I just play the instrument one more time before you put it in your cupboard and stay silent for forever? The new owner agreed. And so Fritz Chrysler played the most beautiful and heart-moving music that the emotions of the owner were so stirred. And he said, I have no right to keep that to myself. Take it, Mr. Chrysler. It's yours. And let the whole world hear it. My dear ones, 
we have been gifted more than this exquisite, exquisite violin. The message of the grace of God in the gospel of salvation. The question is, is the world hearing it from us? First Thessalonians chapter 2. Would you stand with me please if you're able? Beginning here in verse 1, we've just finished the first chapter. First Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul wrote, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you. It was not in vain. <clears throat> but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you once again for indeed the privilege to preach your word. Thank you, Lord, for each one that's here, that's represented, and those that are watching us online uh, for because of illness and other issues that they're dealing with right now. Father, I pray once more that you would meet with us. Father, help. Help this servant of yours to communicate your truth. And Lord, that the Holy Spirit that indwells us would indeed teach us your truth. And whatever gaps that I would fail to mention, Lord, that you'd fill it. And Father, I pray that your will and way be accomplished in each and every one of us. That we would make personal applications in our lives. For indeed, we want to be faithful servants to you, as we would see the Apostle Paul was, along with his companions Silas and Timotheus. So Lord, I ask that you would take care of us as you always do at this time. And whatever cares, whatever thoughts that we may be pondering right at this very moment, Lord, we would just cast it aside that we would focus our attention on the things of you and the things of your word. We do ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Folks, I realize that because I have entitled our series Ready for His Return, that I may have uh, given you the impression that all that we are to learn and get out of this uh, series is about the return of Christ. Now, that is true, uh, and, uh, but uh, as I've said last Sunday, the return of Christ um, is not emphasized in the New Testament so as for us to fill up prophecy charts. Uh, the return of Christ is emphasized in the New Testament so that we would ready ourselves and our lives as we uh, 
anticipate with enthusiasm the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. First uh, Thessalonians and the return of Christ indeed is here, and we will cover it quite extensively, uh, but it's not for us to have a fallout as to when the return of Christ is. This subject of ready for his return, uh, my prayer and my desire for us as a church and as your pastor is that indeed well, we would be ready, not in the knowledge only, that we would be ready so that when we finally get to hear the trump of God, that we have in our good conscience tried our very best to indeed share the message of the good gospel of grace and have lived our life pleasing before the Savior. If chapter 1 gives us a picture of an ideal church with godly leadership, and I must say, I must say, and emphasize godly leadership and godly fellowship as well. It's not just one way. Godly leadership and godly fellowship as well. If that's chapter 1, chapter 2 gives us a picture of an ideal servant of Christ. An ideal servant of Christ. For the last two Sundays, we have considered what true conversion is, and indeed the power of the gospel. This morning, now that we are and have been genuinely converted, not of the flesh, but of the spirit, uh, chapter 3, John, we know, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, are you a disciple? Put simply, are you a follower of Christ? Now, if you are, if you've been genuinely been born again, uh, you are a, a, a disciple, a follower of Christ. That's an easy question. The next question is, are you then discipling others to be another follower of Christ? If you're a disciple, if you're a follower of Christ, are you then discipling others to also become a follower of Jesus Christ? Beloved, the Great Commission is not only to go and preach the gospel, but also to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things uh, and whatsoever I have commanded you, the Lord Jesus said. The gospel is not halfway. It's all in and all the way. It is not enough, beloved, that we share them the gospel and that they would be genuinely saved. We don't stop there, Calvary Baptist Church, in, in, in coming into 50 years and hopefully beyond. We disciple others. We still teach them, teach them the things of God. That is the Great Commission. Discipleship is really not much about a program, but a practice. Discipleship is not much about a program, but a practice. A genuine believer is a disciple, yes. A follower of Christ and every disciple must also disciple others. 
helping them, teaching them to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ through the teaching of his word. It starts at home with parents discipling their own children. And then in the church where the more mature Christians discipling others to then that disciple later on will disciple others and on and on it goes. You remember that little video I showed you during missions month? One, discipling another and that one discipling another and on and on it goes. In our text this morning, yet again, we will see Paul and indeed his companions in ministry manifest and exemplify uh, the, uh, uh, their servanthood, uh, their being a discipler as much as we should be. Paul also in our text, and uh, it will go on for a good while, uh, he also defended his ministry among the Thessalonians. Now he did this, I believe, to instruct the saints, uh, to instruct this young church where he has been just three Sabbaths, as we have learned during the uh, introduction. Uh, he did this, I believe, to provide them an example, a model of servanthood, a model of ministry uh, in, the, in, that, in his godly life, uh, in his ministry, and indeed in his doctrine uh, that he modeled to them, showed to them. Uh, and so the passage is summed up in verse 10. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behave ourselves among you that believe. You see, everywhere Paul went, he was attacked by enemies. Whether they were pagans, whether they were Jews, and sadly, even by other Christians. His motives were contradicted or disputed. His methods were criticized. His messages were assaulted, and his person or his personality was ridiculed. Everywhere he went. Paul did not ignore his enemies, and in some cases, he named them and confronted them head on. But for the most part, he answered his critics by instructing the churches so that the believers will not be misled. He did this in First and Second Corinthians, in Galatians, in Philippians, in Colossians, here in First Thessalonians, and elsewhere. This is how the churches, I believe, are protected from error. They must be taught. They must be taught. They must be taught how to discern truth from error. They must be discipled. They must be equipped biblically in Sunday school. Uh, and uh, in Wednesday Bible studies. 
and through one-on-one discipleship that some of you are already doing. And And of course, the congregational preaching that we're doing now every Lord's Day. All of that. Believers must know what is corrupt or has been corrupted and what is sound doctrine. They must also, the congregation, must be like the Bereans did in that they search the scriptures daily whether these things are so. At this point, allow me to say yet again to my dear flock that you Again, in love. In love, of course. And in the context of what I just shared a while ago. In this ecclesia, in this assembly called Calvary Baptist Church that started in 1973, and praise God, we're still going, preaching from the same book and preaching the same message, I want to say. There are men in this church that are not perfect by any means, but men that I believe who are reputable, men that are reliable, men that are responsible and have a good regard for the advancement of this church. Read my lips when I say that, please who have a genuine regard for the advancement of this church. Men that are not perfect. And I'm not just talking members either. Only. Men that I have observed for these many years, not that I'm infallible. Men that I have talked through of late, and men that I have related to for so many years, who knows their Bible. And they have a good regard and intention for the advancement of the church. Like I said, they're not perfect. And like I said, some are not even members, at least not yet. But I have observed them for a good while now. For some, many years now. And I have it in my heart, and not that I am infallible, like I said. From what I have observed... Uh, These men know their Bible and they genuinely care for this church as a whole. Sadly, just like in the early church, not all men in this church, and in fact in any other church for that matter, as your pastor, who genuinely cares for your welfare, I say to you, watch out. Watch out for those who are foxes in sheep's clothing. Exercise spiritual and even practical discernment. Pay attention to what they are saying or teaching and spreading. Are they themselves and their teaching encouraging? Or edifying to the saints or inciting disobedience, disunity, and discord. 
Take note of their persuasions and propositions. Propositions about justification. Propositions about sanctification. Indeed salvation. About church membership or the dismissal of it. About submission to pastoral authority or disobedience to it. And disregard of it. About serving in the church or non-participation to it. About giving or none of it. But all about taking. Evaluate their professions versus their performance. What they say and what they actually do. Compare and verify their opinions under the microscope of the inspired, infallible, inerrant, incapable of being in error with the word of God. I say it again. Just because a man is highly opinionated and seem to have a lot of things to say about the church in almost anything and everything, it does not mean that they are credible and that they are indeed a workman approved unto God. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 partly to disciple and protect the churches from error pertaining to the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 11, to disciple and protect the churches from false Christ, from false gospels, and from false spirits. Uh, Colossians 2 and 1 Timothy 4, to disciple and protect the churches from error pertaining to marriage and abstaining from certain food. There isn't a preacher of the Bible or a teacher today or a Christian who cannot be challenged by Paul's life and ministry. By God's grace and enablement, Paul was used to set the standard. If only Christ, when he was here on earth, and if only and certainly Paul and his example of servanthood is followed by the servants themselves and are seen and observed by those that are being served. And if we have just followed the example of Paul and indeed the Lord Jesus Christ more than anyone else, Christianity would not have the poor testimony that it has today. And that Christ will be glorified as a consequence of our behavior. Every church and every church member must go back to this pattern and establish its ministry on this example. Notice now how Paul's boldness is in the midst of persecution. For yourselves, brethren, know. Let's just stop there for a moment. For yourselves, brethren, know. This phrase, as ye know, or this thought of the Thessalonians knowing Paul, he repeats this eight times in the epistle. Check it out with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 
verse 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Chapter 2, verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. Verse 2. But even after that we had suffered before, and we were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much Contention, verse 5, For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Here in verse 10, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behave ourselves among you that believe. In verse 11, As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Chapter 3, here in verse 4. For verily when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation as it it came to pass, and ye know. And chapter 4, here in verse 2. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Essentially, in the face of his critics, beloved, in the face of their criticism, Paul said, Ye Thessalonians know me, my ministry, and my message. I, Silas, and Timothy, we are not actors or impostors. Uh, ye know how we perform what we preached. You know how we perform what we preach. Then he said, our entrance, our coming to you was not in vain. Now, and this could mean either of both, that it wasn't in vain, as in it's fruitless, or without success, or that their coming to them were not deceptive or false and without truth or being untruthful. Either of those two would fit the narrative. He proved his boldness in verse 2. But even after that we had suffered before and we were shamefully entreated, as you know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Much contention here is to be understood as much conflict. Much conflict. You see, this event in Philippi is recorded in Acts chapter 16. You can get to this uh, at your own time. This was after Paul cast the devil out of the damn cell, being a young single fortune teller. Uh, Her owners, okay, it's a merchandise, you see, it's a business fortune telling even back then. Her owners losing their income from this fortune because Paul cast out the devil out of this damsel. Uh, they, they, they were mad at Paul. And indeed his companions and brought them before the rulers in the marketplace and had them publicly beaten and thrown into prison. Acts 16, a wonderful chapter in the Bible because it contains not just the beating. Okay, but a lot more that has occurred. So you know, beloved, being a bold disciple, especially in this time of our wokeism, in this time of our cancel culture and the like, being a bold disciple of Christ will sometimes get you persecuted. It's not an if. It's a win. Okay, 
uh, perhaps not quite what Paul experienced being shamefully entreated. That means uh, that he was uh, uh, cruelly attacked. But nevertheless, to be a bold discipler of Christ in this our time, uh, look, you will get persecutions. The other week, I was talking with a brother, and he was uh, telling me about street preaching and, and how he is burdened for it and by it. I have to tell you, I was so refreshed and encouraged. Uh, this brother will be nameless, of course. I've never heard someone talk to me about a desire for street preaching for a long time. I walked away out of that little uh, prayer meeting and uh, I was really taken aback by that. That in this day and age, can you imagine yourself? Uh, going to the Ringwood Station, holding up a Bible and preaching there, where are you going to get your record? You're going to get a lot of flack, for sure. Uh, and indeed, uh, he, he tried it, and uh, already there were some looks, to say the least, and disdain and all that. Now look, whether he does it or a version of it, God bless him. But the point that I'm making is that's boldness in this our time. Notice, secondly, Paul's honesty here in verse 3. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing man, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men, so we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> Christianity today is tainted with men and women who really are not honest. Beloved, our honesty and our integrity is all that we ever have or will ever have. Our honesty and our integrity in the gospel is our capital. In sharing the good gospel of Christ. Without it, we've got nothing. And our credibility will be questioned. You just have to watch and see the scandals happening around us and in the world. Many churches today. And is it any wonder why we have lost the Christian message many times? Is it any wonder why there are so many people who are skeptical about being born again and the testimony of Christ our Savior has been marred? Questioned and in many cases dismissed. Is it, many, is it any wonder how even our own auditors have been putting much scrutiny on churches today than they ever did. 
just ask our treasurer and he'll tell you all about it. How much justification we have to submit in this day and time. Why? Because sadly, my vocation, our vocation as preachers of the gospel now, if you ask the normal Australian today how they um, put uh, trust in our profession and our vocation, we're now number 13. And about two levels is a used car salesman. Yeah. Gone are the days when the preacher of the gospel is lifted up and looked up and respected because he is the epitome of good behavior. When you see a preacher today, and perhaps even to some of you, you would probably thinking, is he really that honest? It saddens me that people would entertain that thought. Not just me, but other preachers of today. Why? Honesty, integrity is no longer. Well, not Paul. Not Paul and his companions. He said in verse 3, For our exaltation was not of deceit and guile. Now let's skip uncleanness for the moment. I promise we'll get back to that shortly. The word deceit here is plan A. And it means fraudulent or deception. Guile is dolos, which means subtlety or craftily. This word describes the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They pretended to respect him and called him as a rabbi, yet they really hated and plotted against him behind his back, and they were what you would call actors and imposters. Nice to your face, but behind your back, they'll talk to you, against you. Again, not Paul and his companions. What you see is what you get with Paul. What he said in private is the same that he would say in public. He was not what you would call a religious politician. Okay. Like these days where they will say what is pleasing to the hearers to tickle their ears and in the process gain favor with them. Paul did not engage himself in uncleanness. He wasn't like the false prophets that Peter described in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, 13, and 14, who walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. No, not Paul and not his companions in ministry. And then verse 4. Paul loved men, but he did not live to please men. That's a big difference. He did not please men, but he pleased God. He knew and understood that it is and it will be God who tries the hearts, and it is and will be God to whom he must give account, uh, and so must we, my dear ones. You and I will give account to the Lord Almighty one of these days. You do not give accounting to me. 
nor are you to expect that I would account to you in all things. Okay, I must put that caveat. Ultimately, we are accounting to the Lord. Now, Jeremiah 17, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Verse 5. Paul, uh, Paul was not a flatterer, for neither at any time use we flattering words. Beloved, flattery is insincere praise. And it's pretentious. It is an attempt to manipulate people and it is the opposite of truth. It may work out there in this fallen, sin-stricken world, but not in the ministry here and any genuine Bible-believing New Testament church. Flattery will not get you anywhere here and in any true church. One commentator said, Flattery has the idea of using the kind of acceptable speech that lulls another person into a false sense of security in order that the speaker may gain his own ends. End of quote. Paul was indeed gracious, genuinely gracious in fact, but uh, he spoke unvarnished truth to men to bring them to conviction, repentance, and saving faith. Not only Paul not used flattering words, notice he never used it at any time. That means it's not his style. He didn't use it at all. He didn't use flattery at any time. It was uh, not him. He had nothing to do with this deceitful practice. And again, if we are to be good disciples and followers of Christ, through Paul's example, we would take Psalm chapter 5 verse 9, where David writes about his enemies, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth, their inward part is very wickedness, their throat is an open sepulcher, they flatter with their tongue. Same is true with the ungodly and unfaithful Proverbs 12, 22, verse 2 and 3. They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. The Lord shall cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaketh proud things. Solomon warned us in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. He that goeth about as a talebearer revealeth secrets. Therefore meddle not with him that flattereth with his lips. Chapter 26, verse 28. A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. Oh, my dear ones, speak the truth in love. Yes. Every time. But do not use flattering words to please men. Still in verse 5, notice how Paul was not covetous and was not in the ministry for money or personal gain. A cloak of covetousness refers to using the ministry as a means for personal gain or greed. He wasn't like the false prophets described by Peter as making merchandise of men. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. Turn your Bibles there please in fact. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. 
Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not." Oh, beloved, adhere to the admonition of the Word of God. Sadly, Christianity today is filled with preachers who wear a cloak of covetousness and enrich themselves with and by the ministry. LinkedIn. LinkedIn published an article last month, very fresh, June the 29th, and the author listed the top seven preachers and their net worth in 2023. The top seven preachers and their net worth in 2023. Again, articles written on the 29th of June. On top of the list is Kenneth Copeland, estimated to be worth $760 million, owns 17.5 million worth of private jet and other aircraft, and lives in a 6 million lakefront mansion. He is followed by David Oyedepo of Nigeria, worth some 150 million and owns four private jets, a Mercedes-Benz C-Class, Land Cruiser and summer houses in the UK and in the United States. Third on the list is Joel Austin, estimated to have a net worth of 100 million dollars. Joel owns a 325,000 Ferrari 458 Italia. Mercedes-Benz G wagon, a Tanglewood house worth 2.9 million, and a River Oaks 10 million mansion in Houston, where he lives with his family. Fourth on the list is Israeli Benny Hinn, estimated to have a net worth of 70 million dollars, owns a Gulf Spring private jet and several expensive cars such as Rolls Royce, Ferrari, McLaren, and a Mercedes-Benz. How about Chris Oyakilomi? Another rich pastor from Nigeria worth $60 million. Sixth on the list is Stephen Fortick Jr., who has a net worth of $55 million, owns a 16,000 square foot gated estate with 8,400 squares occupying the house alone. Seventh on the list is Hubert Angel of Zimbabwe who owns a $4 million worth of car collection. It includes a Rolls-Royce badge, a Rolls-Royce badge, Audi, Audi Q7, Lamborghini, Mercedes Coupe, Aventador, and many more others. Top seven. Now, once again, allow me to say this. Not to draw attention or self-promotion, nor solicitation, or to cry poor. Okay? But rather for nothing more than transparency. Folks, I live with my wife in a rented place at Wantirna South, driving a car that I do not own until I pay it off, with no real hidden savings in my account. There's no stash that is in the Philippines or somewhere. 
the Holy Spirit indwelling me and the Lord knowing my thoughts and intents of the heart, even now at this very moment I say, if anyone feels that I'm not worthy of double honor, as I labor in the word and doctrine, 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, if him that is taught in the word will not communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things, Galatians 6, verse 6, if one will not recognize the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should leave off the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, then I am content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. I learned and still learning both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. I assure you, oh, I assure you, I'm not in it for the money. I could be doing something else for more money. It is never my desire as your pastor to be burdensome to you. Or to use flattering words. Nor have a cloak of covetousness and make merchandise of you. Never. And if I get to that point. You tell me. And I will resign my office. And God is my witness as Paul said here. In verse 6 as we close. Paul did not seek glory from man. Nor of man sought we glory. He wanted all glory to God in Jesus Christ. He understood that whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself, Paul. Like John the Baptist, Paul, I believe, had in his heart and soul that Christ must increase and he must decrease. John chapter 3 verse 30. He referred to himself as nothing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Less than the least of all saints in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. The reason why Paul could have lived like this was because of his relationship with God. He understood what Christ said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. Paul lived his life in reverence of Two, in fear of God and in love of God. That's what Paul is. And that's his example for us, at least for the first six verses. We will see more of this from verses 7 onwards. In closing, let me share this with you. The Meninja Institute in Topeka, Kansas, once had a fascinating experiment. They identified a group of crib babies who did not cry. Babies who did not cry in the crib. 
It seems that babies cry because they instinctively know that this is the way to get attention. Crying is their way of calling out. These babies, however, had been in abusive situations. Their parents let them cry for hours on end and never responded. What happened was that the babies eventually quit crying. Uh, It is almost as if they had learned that it is not worth crying anymore. So the Meninga Institute came in for an experiment. They got some people from retirement and nursing homes, and every day these people held, held these babies and rocked them. The object was to get these babies to start crying again. It worked. Physical touch had made the difference. As important as physical touch is, my dear ones, there is another kind of touch, the touch of the Spirit. That spiritual touch from you and me. That is the special touch that influences and impacts the lives of people. Paul, Silas, and Timothy certainly touch the lives of people in Thessalonica. Would to God that we would do the same in our homes, indeed our workplaces. And yes, would we have that spiritual touch in each other in this place as we ready ourselves for his return. Our Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we have the example, firstly, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life whilst he was here on earth. The God-man, 100% God, and yet 100% man at the same time. Thank you that as Paul followed him in that road to Damascus where he asked him, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And Lord, I thank you that we now have many thousands of years later a document, a letter, a heartfelt letter to this church, new church in Thessalonica that we would see how Paul not only defended himself but exemplified to the church his faithful servanthood. My God, I pray that whatever we've seen and heard and learned at this time, that we as your people would have that steely resolve to follow this example. Help us to be faithful. Help us to see in these last days how, it all, how important it is to live our lives that is indeed ready for your return. Thank you once again for your word. Thank you for the comfort of it. Thank you indeed for the chastisement of it. And indeed, thank you for the confidence we can have in it. Because this is your word. 
and he is the absolute truth and incapable of being in error. We do ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.